<clears throat> when I was uh, preaching in prison one time, there was a, a, a song that was being played just before the before the time for me to teach, and there was an older woman who was sitting behind me, <clears throat> and she tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, you're chomping at the bit, aren't you? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. And, and I feel sort of that way with this message today, because in, in the last two messages where we've been talking about the scriptures and they're teaching about the ministry of women in the church, it's been uh, primarily negative uh, in terms of what cannot be done. And the thing that bothers me about that is that when I think of the original uh, temptation and fall of man, uh, there was all of this freedom, there was all of this choice, and only one small area of prohibition. And yet Satan was the one who tried to make that look bigger than it was and to downplay all the positives. And so I've come to this almost feeling Satan-like in the sense that I've been talking about the negatives, when in reality it is the positive dimension that is really most important. What is it that God has blessed women with in the role that he has prescribed for them related to the church? You may wonder why we turn to Psalm 73 but it seems to me that this psalm really does set the stage and it really does surface the issues for us in terms of what is at stake when we are talking about the way scriptures have laid out for men and women the distinct ministries that they are to have in the church. Uh, David read it, boy, I was really glad because it was that one verse that talks about they, they were fat and their whatever, and, and there was some nice euphemism that really made me feel a lot better. I don't even have to pull my stomach in as I talk about it. But the long and the short of it, as you see it, is, uh, is three basic sections. What I call complaints from the choir loft. Remember, Asaph was sort of the worship leader uh, in, in uh, the congregation of Israel. And he is probably speaking uh, uh, from his experience in terms of looking out over the congregation and he could see how they are dressed and whatever. He may have looked at the parking lot and noticed the, the, the insignias on the chariots or whatever it was out there. But all of that sort of caused him to reach some conclusions that were flawed. But all of it was based upon that premise that's stated in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel. And now, based upon a flawed definition of good, he begins to question whether God is really fulfilling his job up there in heaven or not. Because he looks around and he sees that it appears to be those who are wicked who are doing well, and those who, like him, are pious, they're not doing uh, nearly as well. He's going to save me by putting a battery in my trim deal. <laughs> Bless you. What really this means is they know they can't trust me to stand still, and so they're just going to, they're going to nail me down that way. That's fine. So here's the psalmist looking about, seeing the congregation, and knowing a great deal about the lives of those people out there. And he says to himself, 
something isn't right about this picture. Why is it that those people who I know are wicked seem to be doing so well and, and I and others who are pious are not? I went fishing one time in a charter boat for salmon with my brother. And the only guy that reeled in a fish was a guy that was reading a Playboy magazine. It was disgusting. And my brother said to me, look, don't worry about it. This is all the pleasure he gets. <laughs> he was right. That's the way that Asaph uh, was thinking. Somehow that God was obliged. Then he looked about. Now, I would have to say his picture was a little distorted. I don't think that it's universally true at all. But he says, even in the way that they die, they seem to be free of pain and, and all of that. Maybe they can afford the medical care that eases their pain. But uh, anyway, then he says, and not only that, but they're arrogant about their sin. They shake their fist in God's face and they say, God doesn't know and God doesn't care. And, and, and God is letting these guys get away with this. It just gripes Asaph to death. In fact, he says, I've reached the point where I'm just ready to throw in the towel. If that's what it's really about, why should I persevere in righteousness? Why shouldn't I just join the rest of them? If that's where prosperity is to be found, maybe I should be counted in. And then he says, if I had done that, I would have betrayed this generation. I would have betrayed those people who... Are, are trusting in God and looking to, to him as a leader. And so then his perspective is changed, as he describes in verses 13 through 17, because it is there that he begins to look from the sanctuary of God. And I take it that he means I am now looking at life from an eternal perspective, not the short term of what's happening right at this moment in time, but what happens in eternity? Now he goes out and he looks and he says, their feet are on very slippery ground. The reality is they may be enjoying the good life now, but at the end of this life, they face eternal judgment. Their life is not nearly as good as it looks when you look from eternity. And then he looks at himself and he says, not only do I have the promise of being with God forever in eternity, but I have the reality of knowing God is with me now. And so in his suffering, in his adversity, in his angst of soul, Asaph is saying, I've turned to you. They've turned against you. And so then he ends the psalm by saying, surely the nearness of God is my good. There is nothing better than to be in intimate relationship with God. That is the ultimate good. And what he realizes now is, whatever it is that takes me there is good. If it's adversity, if it's suffering, if it's death, whatever it is, that is good. Not just prosperity. And whatever keeps me from God is ultimately not good. So he's got a whole new view and basically, it has to do with what is good. Now, you may say, what in the world does that have to do with, with the role of women in the church? It has everything to do. Because the real question is, what is good? And has God withheld something good from women by prescribing the role that he does for them? Look with me now, if you would, at... Uh, at the text in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, a text that I've, to which I've referred before, 
speaking. But it is very clear that Paul is saying not only did Satan operate in a certain way in the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3, he also continues to operate on that same premise. He still has the same strategy. And that strategy is to convince someone, to deceive someone into thinking that God is withholding something good. And that it is so good, it is worth disobeying God and independently and autonomously acting on your own to grasp that for yourself as though it were that good. And, uh, and notice that it is the wisdom uh, that, that is going on in the Corinthian church. Those who came as false teachers offering wisdom that went apart from and beyond the cross of Jesus Christ. This superior wisdom that they offered was to, draw, was to wean them away from the purity and simplicity of the devotion to Christ. And that's why he says in verse 3, But I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and, pu and pure devotion to Christ. Folks, there is nothing more important to us than a sincere and pure devotion to Him. That is good. And so the question is going to be, does the role that God has prescribed for women, does it, in fact, inhibit them or restrict them from good? I've set down three goals there. Uh, the glory of God, <clears throat> the edifications uh, of others, and the and intimacy with God. If we had time, we could take each one of those and demonstrate that what God is doing in the church through women achieves those purposes. It glorifies himself. It edifies others. But I want to focus on that last one. It brings and promotes intimacy with God. Uh, Psalm 73 is one of the texts that talks about that. 2 Corinthians 11, simplicity and purity of devotion. And Philippians 3, that's where Paul says, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and so on. And, and that's Paul's desire to intimately know God. A number of people have gone through that Bible study experiencing God. That's what it's about. It's about entering into an intimate relationship with God. So, the question for us is, does the Bible's teaching on a restricted role, that is, not the same role as the role that he has assigned to men in the church, does it inhibit women from achieving the goal of intimacy with God? And I'd like to say it's going to be a resounding no, but let me take some texts for you to see if I can focus that a little bit. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Verses 1 through 18. Now, we're not going to read all those. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, but it sets the tone. By the way, I say in my, uh, on the frame, you'll see, is public egalitarian ministry necessary for spiritual intimacy with God? Egalitarianism is the big watchword today. And what it means is women are no different than men in terms of what they can do. So it means anything a man can do. Remember that used to say, anything you can do, I can do better. Some of you are so old, you don't even know that song. But the bottom line is, that's the mentality. Is anything men can do, we can do better. Or at least as well. But is there, uh, is public egalitarian, that means a woman carrying out the same functions and role as men in the public 
meetings of the church, is that really keeping her from spiritual intimacy with God? Matthew chapter 6 begins this way. Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Thus, whenever, whenever you do charitable giving, do not blow a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogue and on the streets, so that people will praise them. I tell you the truth, they have their reward. So in verses 1 and 2, it has to do with your public charity, your acts of charity. Do you have to do them so that people see you? Do you take your check when the offering plate is passed around and blow it up big and large so everybody sees how much you give and everybody says, whoa, that guy is really pious. He says, no, you're doing that for men. If you are doing it for my reward, then I will see it in secret and I will reward you openly. Then he comes to prayer in verses 5 through 15. Again, one could stand out as we read in Luke chapter 18, God, I thank you that I'm not a sinner like this guy. And you could go on and on and everybody could say, oh my, how holy. He says, when you pray, pray privately that God may bless you in secret. And thirdly, he speaks about fasting in verses 16 through 18. You could do your fasting in such a way that it's like wearing a sign. Everybody knows that you're fasting today. You're doing without. And people can say, oh, isn't that pious? Jesus says, do it in a way that people don't see. Now, what is my point? My point is that Jesus makes a point of saying... Don't do your acts of worship in a way that is to be seen by people. If that is true, then why is it that the push seems to be for women to be able to do things that are public and prominent? It seems to me it flies in the face of that text, and that's only one of many. Second part. It does not inhibit the spiritual intimacy of women when you look at a comparison of the spirituality of men and women, in particular in the Gospels, <laughs> in the New Testament. Take a look at this. I call this the dullness of the disciples. I mean, don't you, don't you have to say the disciples really were slow on the uptake? Now, I understand in some instances the text will say that it was hidden from them to see. I understand that. And part of that is that the disciples were the ones who were packing the swords and whatever, and had they known what was ahead, they would have no doubt resisted, much like Peter attempted, but they would have tried to do that, and so it was, it was a confusing thing to them, and that's why they were clouded in their understanding and even fled then because they couldn't understand what Jesus was about. But in John chapter 13... Verse 21, Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. And then he says in verse 26, when they're all uptight about this, it's the one whom I'm going to take this morsel of bread, I'm going to dip it in and hand it to him. That's the one. Now, we all know, and Judas knew, it was him, right? And then uh, in Matthew chapter 26, you see the same thing in verse 23. The one who dips with me is the one. But then in verse 25 of Matthew 26, Judas says, Surely it is not I, is it? 
And Jesus said, you have said. Now, here's my point. It's pretty obvious to us as we read the details of our Lord eating with his disciples. Is it not pretty obvious that Jesus made it clear to Judas that he was the one? And you have to ask yourself, how come the disciples didn't get it? Well, if you look at the texts that are there, it's often right next to the text where they don't understand what Jesus is saying about his death or about the one who will betray him, that they're having a discussion about who is the greatest among them. They were thinking thoughts of glory as to where they would be. Am I going to sit at his right hand or his left hand? What's going to be in this for me? They were so into what leadership would be for them that they really were not clued in to what Jesus was talking about. And I, I think that that's more true of the men than it was of the women. Uh, look at, uh, uh, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is talking about bread in chapters 14 through 16. That is a fascinating section. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then he comes into this situation where they have the 4,000. And when Jesus presents the problem to them, it's as though they never heard of any way that you could feed a group that size. And yet, it had just happened. And then later on, remember, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and He says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what do the disciples say? Did you bring the sandwiches? They're thinking about lunch. Lunch! You know, and, and it's, they're clueless. And finally, after Jesus gives them the thing. They say, oh, 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 he's talking symbolically about this thing of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in the midst of that, come down with me to the spiritual sensitivity of women, and in particular, the Canaanite woman. In the midst of all their dullness about bread that he's talking about in chapters 14 through 16, in the midst of all their dullness, here is a Canaanite woman who has not been exposed to all the teaching of our Lord Jesus, uh, that has gone on that the disciples have been privy to know. And yet, when he talks about the dogs under the, uh, uh, the, the crumbs uh, not being, uh, the, the bread not being given to the, to the dogs, she says, well, even the dogs, you know, under the table get crumbs. She had better spiritual understanding about bread than the disciples. And she hadn't been with Jesus for three years. When Mary is anointing our Lord Jesus, um, then you see her perception when she's preparing him for his death, both in, in, in John chapter 12 and in Luke chapter uh, 10. You see that scenario. Here's what's interesting about it. When you look at that account, in Mark chapter 14, it says, in response to that use of the expensive ointment, it says uh, that some of the disciples were complaining because it was a waste of resources. When we go back to John's Gospel, we know where it started. It started with Judas. Judas complained about the waste because John tells us he was dipping out of the money bag. What's interesting to me is that in the midst of this thing, people are listening more to Judas. They are more in tune with Judas, some of them, than they are in tune with Jesus, who is saying, she's preparing me for my burial. 
All I'm saying is, men can be incredibly dull. Boy, it's a good thing men we can't talk. I'd hear a bunch of amens right there. But we can be really dull. And the disciples were really dull. And yet when you look at the women who were around Jesus, they seem more perceptive than the men. When you see the woman who washed Jesus' feet in, in uh, Luke chapter 7, you see her in contrast to all these uh, upper echelon leaders that are there. But she seems to have a better grasp of who Jesus is than they. The Samaritan woman in John 4, in contrast to Nicodemus in John 3, John 7, and later on, finally, when Nicodemus shows up for burial for Jesus, he finally gets it. But here's the woman at Samaria who's saying, isn't this the Messiah? It takes Nicodemus, the teacher of the Jews, quite a while to figure it out. Seems to me she gets more points than he by the way, I throw another point on there. It would be E if we had room on there for, for another point, And that is the response to the resurrection. When you look in Luke's gospel, when the women are going out to the tomb and they are told that Jesus is not there, that he has been raised, it says, then they remembered the words of Jesus. That was their moment of, aha. What happens when she goes and tells the disciples? They think the women are nuts. They refuse to believe what they've been told, and they don't remember. Jesus has to give them a little more instruction on the point. All I'm saying is, if you look at the difference in the way women minister, and you compare that with the spiritual perception of women, I do not think they were handicapped by the role that God had given them to play. Next point. Women are not deprived in terms of spiritual intimacy when it comes to the New Testament teaching regarding spiritual gifts. Number one, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 22 through 25. What he's talking about, remember, if we had time to go into that in more detail, is that God has provided a compensation package in the realm of spiritual gifts. And he says, those gifts that we deem to be inferior, those gifts that appear to be of lesser value, have actually been given compensation. And so that there is a kind of equalization that takes place. But my point is this. It's the visible gifts that are the compensation. It's the invisible gifts that don't need it. And so... What I see in terms of the spiritual gifts is those gifts that were most being sought in the Corinthian church were those that were public, visible, you know, and razzle-dazzle, and everybody wanted those. They didn't want those gifts that seemed to be lesser. And Paul's saying, you got your value system upside down. What I'm trying to say is when the egalitarian movement comes along, they are striving for those things they assume to be better. And I'm, I'm challenging whether that is true in terms of the Scriptures. Secondly, in terms of spiritual gifts. Try this on for size. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. Paul is speaking now about the gathered meeting of the church. He is talking about what takes place when either there is no interpreter present or when two or three have already spoken in tongues. In other words, when it's not permissible for one to speak. He says to that person, if the Spirit comes upon you 
and you know that you are not to speak, then let that person be silent and speak to himself and to God. Now I'm asking you this question. What has a person lost who speaks only to himself? What has he lost or she lost in that scenario? The only thing they've lost is an audience. The only thing they've lost is an audience. They have not lost any of the benefit of their intimacy and communion with God. He didn't say, don't speak to God and don't speak to yourself. He said, speak to yourself and to God. So it seems to me that speaking publicly is not the great important thing. It is speaking with God. Try this on for size. When you look at what we know about heaven, it would seem that those things that are withheld from women are not really that important at all in the eternal scheme. Now, I'm going, first of all, from the words faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians 13. And the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith and hope expire. Faith is in what you don't see. When we get to heaven, we will see. Hope is in what comes in the future. Heaven is when you experience the future. So you don't say in heaven, boy, I just hope for... (laughs) You're there. You're there. Love endures for all eternity. So that which lasts for eternity must be of the greatest value, if I understand Paul's logic correctly. Now, think about this. No marriage in heaven. Matthew chapter 22. Remember? Whose wife uh, will, will this be? When, when this woman's been married to seven guys and you know the whole long hypothetical story. Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. There will be no marriage in heaven. If there is no marriage in heaven, then there will not be that relationship which requires subordination. When you look at... Uh, The next point, coming from Jeremiah as well as the New Testament. There won't be any teachers in heaven. You ever think about that? I am a dinosaur, folks. You won't be seeing me standing behind a pulpit in heaven. You know why? Because we'll know all things. That's what Jeremiah 31 says. When the new covenant is fulfilled, you won't need somebody to teach another. You won't need somebody to exhort one another. (laughs) All of those public roles that we have here won't be there because it's all in the hands of our Lord. All of those public, visible things. And so what I've raised is the question, is it not true that in heaven, our worship, and I mean our in the sense of all, male and female, that our worship in heaven will be more like women's worship here Because all those visible things are now going to be extinct. Last point. Uh, Women aren't getting the short end of the stick when you look at Jesus' dealings with Mary and Martha. It, It was very interesting to me. I'm looking primarily at that text in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. That text that says, remember that Martha's out in the kitchen and and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha comes in, hands on her hips. That was Martha Stewart, by the way. And, and Martha comes in, hands on her hips, and she's all huffy because Mary's not out there helping her peel the potatoes. And, 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 and whatever. And Jesus says, 
she has chosen the best part. Now, what's interesting is when I was looking at the account of the washing of Jesus, or the anointing with Jesus of Jesus' feet in John chapter 12, it's interesting that in that text it tells us again Martha is out in the kitchen. In fact, I've wondered, are these texts really talking about the same event? And is the better thing what Mary is doing by anointing the feet of our Lord Jesus? I don't know. But I'll tell you this, she wasn't having a discussion, she wasn't having a debate with Jesus. She was simply expressing her adoration. Now here's my take on Martha. Martha knew what her role was. And so she is functioning within that role, but she expects glory in it. Martha, that soup is the finest soup I have ever had. Could I have the recipe for that? Hey, I like good recipes. Don't, don't get me wrong. But, you know, it, it's that sort of thing where Martha is getting her strokes for what she does. She's getting her visible appreciation. And here's Mary, who is simply sitting at the feet of Jesus. People won't say, well, man, Mary, that's really great, what you're doing. Martha was upset. And Jesus says, sitting silently at his feet is the better thing. So I have to ask uh, this question after I make my final conclusion. Restrictions that are placed on the ministry of women do not inhibit in any way the spiritual relationship that women can enjoy and the intimacy they can enjoy with our Lord Jesus Christ. Which now raises the question, so what is it that is so good that God is withholding in the minds of egalitarians who feel they must grasp for what men do? What is it that God is withholding? I have to say, is it prominence? Is it visibility? Is it the ability to lead others, in particular men? Are those noble goals? Are those the important things that we should be striving for? I think it's to glorify God, to edify others, and to enter into intimacy with Him. Those are not restricted in any way. So whatever it is that women are kept from doing, it seems to me... They are inferior goals. And if that is their pursuit, then I think there's trouble. I love this verse, don't you? Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is our sovereign protector. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He withholds no good thing from those who have integrity. God is not giving anybody who loves Him the short end of the stick. That's just flat true. So I suggest to you, not only are silence and submission no hindrance to intimacy, I think there are times when they actually facilitate it. Now, let me just give you a, a hypothetical scenario. Here we are on Sunday morning. We're in the, the, the Lord's table and we're, we're, uh, we're at a period where maybe it's silent. Now, for me as a man, and I suppose for me as an elder, I'm saying to myself, somebody needs to say something. Okay, I'm sorry. That's, that's just, you know, you're saying something needs to happen here. That's not necessarily true, by the way. But you're thinking something needs to happen. And so you're saying to yourself, or maybe the meeting is popping along, and you've been studying a text all week, and you think, I really need to share this. 
What you're waiting for is your chance to speak. What you're waiting for is a pause in the action so you can get up. And my point is, you're thinking too much about what you are going to do and not as much about your relationship with God. So that a woman who doesn't have to speak, doesn't have to worry about where the gaps come and whatever, she just carries on. Just carries on. I'm not so sure that that's a bad thing. Application for men. Silence can be a sin. Silence can be a sin. Adam's silence in the garden was sin. He listened to his wife. He did not speak. He did not lead. He was led. For him, that was sin. There are times when men ought to step forward. They ought to exercise leadership in their family. They ought to be exercising leadership in their marriage. They ought to be exercising leadership here. And so when that exercise doesn't occur, it may, it may be sin. I'm not saying every time anyone is silent it's sin. I'm saying it may be sin if you are not taking the leadership you know God has called you to do. But silence may be golden. And here's the beauty of this. The same principles that we've been talking about that apply to men, uh, women, give men the freedom not to speak. Think about that. Now, there are some of us who are hesitant to speak. I confess, I'm not one of them. There are some of us who are inclined to speak. Sometimes we are too inclined to speak. What this text tells me is, even if I think of something that is very edifying to me, I don't necessarily have to share that with others because I can speak to myself and to God. I can carry on in my personal worship, I can carry on in my dialogue with God, I can carry on and I don't have to stand and say anything publicly. What that does is it gives me the freedom not to speak. And, and if you look in 1 Corinthians 14, you will notice silence can be golden. If there's a point at which no more prophets ought to speak, two or no more than three. There is a point at which no more tongue speakers ought to speak, two or no more than three. Or if an interpreter is not present. Silence is a good thing at times. And when it is a good thing, these texts that tell us we can worship God without being visible and vocal are great encouragement to say, just sit there and be still and worship me and let somebody else speak. So, there are, it's a double-edged sword. Some need to speak. Some, like me, need to speak less. Okay, conclusion. Satan's scheme. Keep people from what is best by enticing them to do what's forbidden. Keep people from what is best. Here's the thing I've been thinking about. You know, the one tree in the garden we forget about pretty quickly is the tree of life. See, in that garden, we tend to, to oppose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the forbidden tree, with all of the other trees. But the text tells us that in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life. What Satan is seeking to do is by focusing our attention on the tree that we can't partake of, he is really keeping our eyes off of the tree from which we not only can partake, but should partake. And so, we need to watch out 
for what Satan is doing. And by the way, from 2 Corinthians 11, I would say he's still using those tactics. Satan is still saying to Christians, here is that thing that you cannot do. And God has withheld that. That is really a good thing. For a woman to be able to get up and preach or to lead men or to pastor a church, that's a good thing and you ought to have it, whether or not God's Word permits it. That's the wrong focus. It keeps us from doing the things that are life for us and takes us down a course which leads to trouble. Forbidden fruit is a test for us. God withheld Israel from food and from water so that they could be tested in their hearts to know their hearts toward God and that He could provide for them. What God forbids, what God restricts us from having is for our good. That's what Asaph came to see. Yes, I am not getting the prosperity that other people are, but God has withheld that from me for my good. He has not withheld good from me. He has withheld that from me for my good. Talk about the garden revisited. And I was thinking about it. It all comes down, doesn't it? We're all back at the garden again. And that is we've got a choice. It's all about one thing. (laughs) And that's do we partake of the tree of life? Do we partake of the one tree that will give us everlasting life? And that tree is Jesus. And anything that seeks to move us away, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, anything that seems to woo us away, to tempt us to have our devotion uh, focused on anything but Him, that is really Satan's device. He is leading us from what we should have to that which we should not. I was thinking about every one of us. I'll bet you that if you think in your mind, as I think in mine, there is some forbidden fruit. There is some particular tree, if I may say, metaphorically, in your life where Satan's saying, you know, that is a really fine tree. And and you really ought to partake of that. Now, for some, all too many in evangelical churches, for some men, it may be pornography. Bad tree. Bad fruit. Uh, An illicit uh, relationship. Bad fruit. All of us have something, I think, that is before us that we're saying to ourselves, it does seem desirable. And God is saying, it really isn't. It really isn't. I suspect that many people turn away from the gospel because they think, just like uh, Satan tempts them to, that if you become a Christian, God is going to withhold good things. God's going to keep you from doing all those things that were so much fun as an unbeliever. And i got to tell you, God does not withhold anything good. And whatever He withholds that isn't good, He has something in its place that is better. That is simply the way it is. And so I say to you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, then in a sense you've got a tree to, to make a decision about the tree of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to speak figuratively, the cross of our Lord. Do you acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone is the Son of God who died for your sins? Will you trust in Him as the one who will give you forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life? And knowing Him will be your good for all eternity. That's what it's about. So I hope that what you see 
is in the midst of all of the things that we've had to say that God does not allow. What I'm trying to say is women ought to, and I believe women in this church do, rejoice. Because what God has withheld is not their good. And what God has given is. Now I want to say one more thing. I'm going to answer some, a number of questions that have been raised next week. And so I, that's why I didn't have a particular study guide because I'm just going to go down through some of the issues. And I'm also going to deal with some of the implications for men in leadership. So we'll move there uh, next week. But I hope, I hope that if you're a woman, this, this has been an encouragement to you. God is blessing you by the place that He has given you and the role that He has given you. It is a place of blessing. And you ought to praise Him for what He gives and what He withholds. Father, thank You for these texts. Help us to see Satan's strategy at work so often when he points to things that will lead to our destruction and causes us to believe that they are good. Help us to see what you withhold is not good at all. It is what you give that is good. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for our sins and who provides the opportunity for eternal life for all who would believe. In Jesus' name.